Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of We F'd Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here once again on our bi-weekly journey to tell you about all of the times in history where we effed up. What are we talking about today, Cody? We are revisiting our old friends, the Mongol Horde. No, I mean, yay. <laughs> Wait, and the, I, I'm confused as to how I'm supposed to feel. And I the, feel uh, sad about death, but also happy to be returning, I guess, to them. Well, this one ends a golden age. It ends the Golden Age? Ends a Golden Age. Oh. Not the not the Mongol Golden Age, but the Islamic Golden Age. Oh, okay. Yes. I didn't know. Man, Golden Ages are so confusing because it seems like there's so very, many of them. They're very and, arbitrary. Yeah, they're totally arbitrary. And one civilization can have multiple Golden Ages. Mm-hmm. Be like the early and the late Golden Age, the Eastern and the Western Golden Age. Boo to Golden Ages. Mm. Use uh, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm postulating. Use all of the periodic elements. The Not tungsten age. The ubiquitum age. Or the, unubiquitum. The whatever. unobtainium age. Yeah. Aren't there several like UU? Those are like the placeholder names for ones they haven't named yet. Oh, okay. And unobtainium is from Avatar. Uh, the strontium age. The bismuth age. The helium age. The vibranium age. You can't just use fake... You, you, the adamantium you, age. You've ruined it. You've ruined it. Anyway. Don't, you can't use fake elements. Gold is a real The element. neon age. There you go. Yeah. That's a good one. You could use... Can you use hydrogen? I wonder. I mean, I guess it is an element. It is like the... It is the... the um, the atom that fuses to so many other things to round it out. The Seaborgium age. Seaborgium. Okay. Yep. Anyway. Man, we really took this really far down. You did. Well, I started to, and then you threw in a bunch of fake elements. Anyway, back to where what we're actually talking about. This is not a science podcast. Could be. Could be a science podcast. We could uh, have an yeah, episode about topic, science but, stuff. But this is... Uh, sort of, uh, anyway. So, as always, a little bit of background. Okay. Uh, since the Islamic conquests in the 7th century, the Muslim world was ruled by leaders called caliphs. Right. If you remember their initial conquests, uh, they featured heavily in episode 2 of this So, So maybe go back and listen to that a little bit. I've heard it pronounced multiple different ways. I think British people say caliph. Caliph. Like caliphate. Caliph. Okay. Sure. Caliphate. I thought it was caliphate. Tomato, tomato, right? The caliph was held. Uh, the caliph held both religious and political power, and was regarded as the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. Right, right. Three successive caliphates ruled much of the Muslim world from the seventh through the ninth centuries. Okay. The first, the Rashidun caliphate, was ruled by the first four successors to Muhammad, the rightly guided or Rashidun caliphs. Um, and this is where the Sunni-Shia split in Islam occurs in this period. So it, it happens early on, but it's not really our focus today. But just know like that happens around this time. Okay. Uh, after the first fitna in 661, so it's like a civil war, mm-hmm. uh, the dynastic Umayyad Caliphate took over. At its height, it spanned from the Iberian Peninsula, so like Spain, Portugal, all the way to the Indus Valley in Pakistan. Wow. 
So basically all along the southern edge of Europe. Not in Europe? I mean, just other than Iberia? um, Not really in Europe, but like all along North Africa, the Middle East, um, and into Central Asia. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. it. It was basically like a parallel to the Roman Empire. The I mean, Eastern, like par- the, the Eastern Roman Empire was around at this time, but it was nowhere near as large. Okay. Okay. So, uh, the Umayyads uh, had discriminated against non-Arabs in their empire, which led to discontent that culminated in their overthrow by the Abbasid Caliphate in 750. As part of their consolidation of power, the Abbasids established a new capital in 762, Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Still a very important, very large capital city. Arguably not as important as it once was. As this period of time we're talking about here. But, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it quickly grew into one of the largest cities in the Muslim world. The Abbasids ruled over a large, multi-ethnic empire that possessed some of the oldest civilizations like Egypt and Persia. So uh, Abbasid were... Uh, they were the Welcoming ruling... to other ethnicities. Yes. And the... Umayyad were not. Yes. Okay, got yes. it. And here's a image of the what it looks like by the time the Abbasids come to power. Dang. So like all the way here from like North Africa, all the way over here into Central Asia. All the way through Saudi Arabia. Yep. And here's Baghdad, like right in the middle. Okay. So it's like very much a crossroads between very powerful city, centrally located yes. into a massive empire. Yeah. So like a lot of the, the trade routes from Asia and China are going to pass through Baghdad. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, aside from going through Russia, there's really no other way. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, several parts of the Quran emphasize the importance of knowledge and education, and so the Abbasids invested heavily in making Baghdad a center of learning and scholarship. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of this um, based off of, like, math history. Yes, the, we'll, we'll get it out a little bit. Okay, I was going to say, I think the Islamic nation at that point was very heavily involved in like mathematics and mm-hmm. and trigonometry and things yep. like that. Practically every document in a different language, like Latin or Greek or Persian or even Chinese, or one of the various uh, dialects of Chinese, was translated into Arabic, while the introduction of paper made it much easier to, trans- to transcribe information and distribute it. And for the first time, one of the first times in history, it became possible to make a living just from writing and selling books. God bless. So you have much more democratization of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So it's become a uh, lucrative position to actually do this and not just like a for funsies or for monks only. Or like, yeah, you're already rich and this is your hobby. Right. Yeah. Uh, massive libraries and academies were constructed in the city, such as the legendary House of Wisdom. The House of Wisdom. It sounds like from Game of Thrones. Yeah, <laughs> kind of does, yeah. Uh, in the mid-9th century, the Abbasid Caliphate began to fracture. Uh, several areas gained autonomy under local leaders, but continued to pay lip service to the Abbasid Caliph. The capital was moved around a few times in the 9th century, but it was settled back in Baghdad by 892, and the city retained its preeminent place in the Muslim world. So the Abbasids, they kind of start to lose central authority, like a lot of their political power. And you have all these other different areas of their caliphate kind of being very autonomous. But the caliph is still highly regarded as a religious leader, 
Um, so, so, but so by the, by the time we get to where we're talking about, so like the 13th century, the Abbasid Caliphate it only directly controls like the area basically or about what is modern day Iraq mm-hmm. and a few like the areas in Saudi Arabia where like Mecca and Medina are. Okay, so it's greatly reduced its footprint. It's basically yeah. just one country's worth of space and then two major religious areas. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of the other Muslim leaders in the area, they're still paying lip service to them, So, but, you know. Overall, it's not really a thing anymore. Yeah. They don't have a, a close grip on... Yeah, it's kind of like how the Pope used to have political power, and then that just kind of went away over the centuries, mm-hmm. but still has religious power. This just happened a lot more quickly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so up to the 13th century, several discoveries were made throughout the Caliphate, much of it in Baghdad, during a period known as the Islamic Golden Age. Oh. <clears throat> uh, mathematician Muhammad ibn al-Khwarizmi made several advancements and is regarded as the father of algebra, mm. which the word algebra itself, if you think about it, comes from the Arabic word aljabr. Hmm. What does it stand algebra. for? Algebra. Yeah. So, what what does that mean? Aljaber. Uh no, I didn't write it down, but oh. but um but but yeah, so like if you look at like a lot of like the math terms or especially with algebra, I mean if if you think of like how the Arabic language is translated into English, the A L prefix. Yeah. So uh, Islamic art developed and incorporated geometric patterns, and trigonometric discoveries uh, included uh, the discovery of the law of sines, which is important for triangles and angles and all that math stuff that I don't understand. I found out what aljaber means. It means calculation by completion, which is exactly what algebra is. Yep. It is solving for a number, so that is... A squared plus B squared equals C squared, that kind of thing. No. Isn't that the... I mean, that's the Pythagorean theorem. That's how oh, you yeah, calculate that's the... Um, that's how you calculate the, the hypotenuse oh, of a triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, this would be like having an equation that equals 28 and then oh, solving yeah, yeah, yeah. for a yeah. variable. So, that I mean, the, both are types of algebra, but A squared plus B squared equals C squared is trigonometry. So I, I'm a history guy, not a math guy. And I'm not a math person either. But math I just, is dumb. I just... Pulled that out of my butt, apparently. Math is dumb. Well, not always. Nope. Dumb. Um, But you love space, and guess what gets us to space? Magic. A whole lot of math. It's magic. An incredible amount of math. It's magic and Elon Musk's ego. That's what gets us to space. <laughs> uh, what about NASA? Huh? What about NASA? It's just an agency of magicians. I wish it was. Okay. I w- The <laughs> National... Um, so I can't, I can't think of, I can't think of one. I wow. Think, yeah. Good yeah, job. That's a failure. Wordsmith there. Yep. Uh, Ibn al-Haytham, described as the world's first true scientist, was a key figure in the refinement of the scientific method. Nice. Used by sixth grade science fair participants the world over. Yes. And I don't really recall... Uh, learning in sixth grade, one of the persons who was a key figure in it was a Muslim guy. No, no. Because science doesn't have anything to do with history. Yeah. It does have to do with math, though. Math sucks. 
Knowledge of the wider universe was advanced with key developments in astronomy, such as the improvement of the astrolabe and the first known reference to the Andromeda galaxy. Dang, okay. It wasn't, we didn't really have an understanding what galaxies were yet. We mm-hmm. wouldn't really understand that until the 20th century, like Edwin Hubble. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is the first actual, like, if you go back, it's like, oh, this is a reference to this. Kind of when you go back and see, like, references to Halley's Comet, like, in the 11th century. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what the hell it was, but, yeah. Uh, rejection of the traditional Ptolemaic system of planets was advanced as a theory. So this is, like, before Kepler and Copernicus were really like, hey, the sun, that's the big boss man before, in our solar system. Before the heliocentric. Yes. Yeah. Um, and several names for, for stars come from this period, like Aldebaran, Rigel, Beetlejuice. Hmm. So interesting. I did not know that. Healthcare was revolutionized as hospitals actually required doctors to have medical diplomas. Wow. Which I'd say that's an advancement. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Al Zarawi was the first to develop the mastectomy as a treatment for breast cancer. Wow. Granted, a mastectomy in the 13th century was probably horrendous. Yeah. I but... mean, amputation of any sort or surgery, just yeah. in general. Was probably really yeah. bad. Um, one of John Adams' daughters had to have a mastectomy. She had breast cancer and she had no anesthesia. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And no. that was like in the 1800s. <laughs> Yikes. So. Well, very interesting though that they were like, hey, if there's cancer and it probably cut it off. Makes yeah, sense. I mean, that's progress. Yeah. So. Because I guess they could theoretically survive it. Well, yeah, and I mean, at the time, if they didn't understand what cancer was or how it metastasized, like, they were probably like, there is a mass, we have to treat it intravenously or Mm -hmm. through a certain diet or, you know, whatever. I'm just thinking of, like, at the same time where medicine was in Europe, like, the humors and all that. Yeah, like, you know, uh, bloodletting. Yeah, (laughs) bleed them. She has a mass in her breast. Bleed her. That'll work. Yep. So, it, I mean, just all things considered, it is pretty forward thinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although terrible in practice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weirdly enough, alchemy. Oh, yeah. I think it will, you know, alchemy. But, like, alchemy, it's like, it's always poo-pooed. And, yeah, the idea of it, oh, I want to turn any substance I have into gold. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a little ridiculous. But, they're, like, in... The course of doing that, some people did discover certain uses for certain substances, yeah, like certain chemical compounds and that sort of thing. So it can be useful, or I mean, it was useful to some extent. So, but you know, that's a thing still at this time. Well, and you know, if we didn't have those alchemists in, if we didn't have those alchemists of, uh, ancient times then we would not have had such quality animes such as full metal alchemist <laughs> oh sorry i had to i had to do it no you didn't <laughs> i did the most detailed maps of the period were created by muhammad al idrisi and were later used by columbus and da gama in their voyages interesting literature also flourished the legendary tome 1001 nights was compiled in this period uh, and the framing story features one of the Khalees as a character. 
Yeah, I remember that, actually. Yeah, because, like, you know, the Queen uh, Cesarade had to tell a different story every night for a thousand and one nights so he wouldn't kill her. Right, exactly. Um, So, but yeah, and those are, like, you know, Arabic folk tales and stuff uh, compiled, uh, just, you know, passed down through the centuries, but compiled into one uh, story at this time, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the way that a lot of... um what is that called? Oral history? Yeah. Ends up being on paper. And I think that those those same stories were basically exactly that. Just yeah. folk tales that were kinda eventually like, written down. Kind of like the Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. The Iliad. Um, so. Which I I think it's, it's pretty commonly known at this point that Homer didn't actually write those necessarily. Oh, yeah, yeah. He didn't write them. He just, well, he wrote them down. Yeah. He compiled them yes. into a linear... Yeah. timeline yeah but they've been passed down for centuries at that point right um other advancements in music architecture biology and physics were made during the age wow i'm gonna show you here this is a depiction of the inside of the house of wisdom so you see like it's kind of just like a big library yay you see a lot of people just having discussions on various topics so they're all hollering at one another yep. jumping down one another's throats yep. so it's it's i'm likening usual it to, academic discourse yeah i'm likening it to like roman salons french salons you mean no uh, i'm i'm thinking like the word salon is french but i'm thinking of like during um development of philosophy and things like that like the like the roman baths like the bathhouses, because that's where they would have like a lot of libraries and such. Sure, I didn't know that they had libraries and bathhouses, but yep. yeah, just or, like or, or like the Greek like academies. Yeah, whatever. I don't okay. know the name for it. it does, that doesn't matter to me. But the idea of like people being in an area where they have ready access to knowledge, and then just like arguing with one another to further oh, their de- yeah. their ideas, and then yeah. write them down. Yeah. And I'm sure that these were probably bigger, especially because this place is called literally the House of Knowledge. So around this time, we have our old friend, the Mongols, who, if you remember correctly, I think it was episode 12, I think. I don't remember exactly which one was. The one we did on uh, Shah Muhammad II of the Khwarezmians. The Khwarezmians, they had just been conquered in 1221 uh, by Genghis Khan. Uh, which is the first Middle Eastern uh, country that he had conquered. So they, they rule pretty much what is Persia now. Mm-hmm. So they're bordering right on uh, what is left of the Abbasid Caliphate. Okay. Uh, Genghis had died in 1227, but his successors continued his expansionist policies. I think I remember us talking about that. Yeah. In 1251, his grandson, Monke Khan, came to the throne and began plotting expansion in the Middle East. So just know, like, 1250s, okay, he's got his eye, he's, he's looking over, he's got his, he his maps spread out spread out on his uh, table in his yurt. He's looking, he's like, hmm, they look ripe for the picking over there. So just keep in mind that they're, they're around. Now the caliph at this time is a guy by the name of Al-Mustasim. Mustasim. Mustasim, yes. Born in 1213 in Baghdad. Uh, Not much is known about his life before he came to the throne in December 1242, after the death of his father, Caliph al-Mustansir. By the time of his rule, the Abbasid Caliphate was a rump state, as I mentioned, corresponding to roughly the the area of modern-day Iraq. Keep all those factors in mind. 
1253, a Mongol army numbering over 100,000 oh, and led by Monka's brother Hulagu began marching towards Iraq. Uh, they initially did battle with and eliminated the, this is going to be a familiar name, the Nazari Order of Assassins in northern Persia, leaving only, only their Masya fortress in Syria. And yes, these are the same assassins who are the inspiration for Assassin's Creed. Oh, okay. So I was like, I don't know who the Order of Assassins are. Yep. Okay. At least in, at least in the first game. Um, so uh, was, was that really a thing? Like they, yeah, they there was were... an actual order of assassins. Dang. Yep. Hashashin. Okay. So cool. In 1256, after vanquishing the assassins, Hulagu turned southwards towards Baghdad, sending out raiding parties to soften up the caliphate. Hulagu sent word to the caliph to submit to Mongol rule and provide tribute in the form of troops. If he refused, Baghdad would be destroyed. Uh oh. Now keep in mind, the caliph, he'd been alive, uh, granted, he'd been a child, but he'd been alive when the Mongols destroyed the Khwarezmian Empire. He would have learned about it. Mm-hmm. He's right next door. He knows what the Mongols can do. Uh oh. What do you think he does? Uh, he says, screw you guys, you're not getting anything. Pretty much. Fun. Now. Cool. There's his the reason as to his motives are not really recorded. Murky. Yes, there is. There have been speculation that an advisor and who kind of I, I originally thought could be this f up could be pinned on, but after further research, I decided no, because it's kind of up in the air. There's an, uh, his vizier Ibn Al Alkami, mm-hmm. because Al Alkami. He survives what's coming and ends up serving the Mongols for a little while. So they think like, oh, maybe he betrayed the, him in some way or, you know, was gave him bad advice. But from what I found, Al-Alkami had tried to persuade the Caliph, hey, let's just submit to these guys. Otherwise, they're going to destroy Baghdad, probably kill you. Doesn't mean that he couldn't have been in cahoots with them. Yeah. But it seems like his purpose was not to have the caliph. He had sent out peace offerings to the Mongols. Nothing came of it. Yeah. So potentially he was either in cahoots with them or maybe just making the best out of a bad situation. Yeah. And I, I, based on the research, I tended to lean towards the latter. Yeah. And also the caliph, he is ultimately the guy in charge. Right. So the buck stops here sort of thing. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is obviously where he f's up because you don't say no to the Mongols. Not a horde of them. Not the Mongol horde. Uh, Yeah, it's you know in later centuries, yeah, you could probably say no to them and push them around because they weren't relevant anymore. But like you know, Genghis has only been dead for thirty years. The Mongols are at the height of their powers. Still very strong. They, you know. uh, they're, they're like the, the the empire isn't even as large as it would get. Oh, they're wow. on the ascent. Like it, it is, you just don't say no to them. You just give in. <laughs> but this is. But he does something really stupid. The caliph, he doesn't really take any actions to fortify the city or call for reinforcements. He just kind of assumed 
that the Muslim world would come to his defense because he's the caliph. Oh, no. Mamluks who were in charge of Egypt at this time just say no. The people in charge in Syria, they're like, oh, well, they're coming for you, so we're going to fortify our own stuff in case they come for us. Cold-blooded. Yeah. Uh, Only once Hulagu arrived on the outskirts of Baghdad on January 11th, 1285, did the caliph send out an army to face the Mongol conqueror. The paltry force of 20,000 was wiped out by the Mongol horde, and Hulagu began besieging the city on January 29th. Baghdad was surrendered on February 10th, after Mongol siege engines broke through the city walls. What's a siege engine? Like a siege tower? Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember in Return of the King, where like they were besieging Minas Tirith, and they bring up these big old towers to, like... You don't remember. Yeah, I mean, I do, but <laughs> the only time, the only versions of Lord of the Rings I've ever seen is are the extended ones, and yeah. it's it always ends up having to be like a marathon. So I'm sorry to Steve, our editor. I fall asleep. No, I don't. I th- no, I have watched through all of them and stayed awake, but. I can't remember specifics, so I I just googled a a uh, a picture of one, and yeah. one of the ones that came up was an elephant, because elephants were used as yeah. as siege yep. engines in certain countries. But here's, um, a, yes. here's an image of the uh, just a contemporary image. I mean, ish. Yeah. <laughs> contemporary ish. Oh, yeah. It's not quite as old as the 12th century, but it's also not uh, very detailed. It's not the 21st century image. No. No, it's great. I like it. Yeah. So the city surrendered. The caliph personally um, throws himself at Hulagu to be like, please spare the city. And Hulagu basically just like, I gave you your chance. Ding! There are differing accounts regarding the caliph's death. Super cold-blooded. One account details Hulagu locking the caliph in a room with all of his treasures and told him to survive by eating the gold that he could have used to buy more troops or fortifications. Mic drop. That one's less likely than what actually happened. Um, the more likely scenario is that an, um, the caliph was rolled up in a carpet and trampled to death by horses. <gasps> wow. Because the Mongols had a superstition about spilling royal blood onto the ground. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Th- so like It was bad luck for them. Yeah. Okay. So, rolled up in a carpet and trampled to death by horses. Dang. Afterwards, the city was given over to the army for a week of plunder. And raping and pillaging. Of course. Approximately 500,000 people were killed. Wow. Okay. Because Baghdad around the time has a population of over a million. Wow. So, like, over half. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And that's just, like, the, mid- the mid-range estimates. Wow. Like, the estimates I found between... 200,000 and 800,000. Did you say how many troops the Mongols were asking for in tribute? No. Okay, they just said troops. Yeah. Okay. Like, like when we call on you, when we go conquer, go a-conquering other places, we expect you to contribute your troops. <laughs> go a-conquering. Yes. <laughs> like uh, that Christmas carol, go a-wassailing. Yep. You should make a Christmas carol called Here We Go A-Conquering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe. Um, but yeah, so so 
in exchange for his mighty diss of saying, no, you can't have any soldiers, he's like, okay, fine. Well, we'll murder you and kill half your population then. Yeah, well, that's it's also like you told the Mongols no. Yeah, well. So we, yeah. you need to be taught a lesson and be made an example of to everybody else. Lesson was taught. So, yep. Uh, many of the great centers of learning, including the House of Wisdom, were destroyed with all of their con- collective knowledge lost. No. And this is typically what is regarded as the end of the Islamic Golden Age, which is why I include, that's why we're doing an episode on it. It always like kind of hurts a little bit when you read about like this great repository of knowledge was lost. Yeah. It's like, oh, why did you? Why? It's like, you know, a lot of armies would be like, oh, churches, they're holy ground. They're sanctuary. Screw the churches. Save the libraries. I know. It should be like a Geneva that, that Convention should be a t-shirt. thing. Screw the churches. Save the libraries. <laughs> That's a good t-shirt. Write it down then. Yeah. But like, it's like, you know... The churches can be rebuilt. The stuff that's in the library, it might, especially around this time, it might be the only copy of that thing in existence. You're gonna destroy it. Um, you <sighs> should. That should be a part of the Geneva Convention. It might be. I don't know. No, I'm 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 being facetious, but no. um, that should have been like a. You can't touch that. Yeah. It's like hospitals, you know, like hospitals and medics are are generally like kind of exempt from war. It's like, no, they have a job to do and they're not supposed... I mean, not that everybody abides by that or whatever. That's a very um, outdated slash old-fashioned way to look at it. But I'm just thinking like that should be a rule again. Yeah. So uh, here's a quote from the 14th century Persian historian Wasaf. So writing not too long after this. Quote, They swept through the city like hungry falcons attacking a flight of doves, or like raging wolves attacking sheep, with loose reins and shameless faces murdering and spreading terror. Beds and cushions made of gold and encrusted with jewels were cut to pieces with knives and torn to shreds. Those hiding behind the veils of the great hurry were dragged through the streets and alleys, each of them becoming a plaything as the population died at the hands of the invaders, end quote. Jesus Christ. Yep. That's incredibly intense. Yeah. As I mentioned, the sack of Baghdad regarded as the end of the Islamic Golden Age and the end of the Abbasid Caliphate. There would be further caliphs over the centuries, but none would hold religious authority over all Muslims. Woof. Yeah. There would be a few, like, there's the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt... Uh, the Ottomans claimed, the Ottoman Sultan claimed uh, caliphate for himself, but um, the last person to have that as a recognized title was in the 1920s. I know that the leader of ISIS, when mm-hmm. they were at their height, uh, claimed to be a caliph, but pretty much everybody was like, no. Yeah. So. We're not... It d- stop trying to make caliph happen. Yeah. It's not happening. Yeah. Baghdad would be re- rebuilt and would be a major center of trade in the Ilkhanate, Hulagu's portion of the Mongol Empire that he would rule after the empire was divided. But it would never really be the same again. Um, and Hulagu's destruction of Baghdad was cited as a major reason for the later war that would be fought against him by his cousin Burka Khan, 
uh, the leader of the Golden Horde, who had converted to Islam. Oh no! So this, this also is like you is uses the excuse for like because this is when we start seeing the Mongols start fighting amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. So this was also oh, cited no. as a reason for that. So. so he's like big victory, and then later it's like you just signed your own death warrant, buddy. Yeah. Dang, um, way to go, Hulagu. I think Hulagu won that war, but yeah, it's still just like more war. Woo! Yeah, great. More destruction. Uh, sources I used for this. George Atiye and John Hayes, The Genius of Arab Civilization from 1992. Marie Favreau's The Horde from 2021. Uh, Halil Hankabe's article on Ibn al-Alkami in the Turkish Journal of History, issue 72 from 2020. Toby Huff, The Rise of Early Modern Science from 1993. David Morgan, The Mongols from 1990. William Polk's Understanding Iraq from 2005, and Paul Strathern's Empire from 2020. So there's no feedback this week, so as usual, um, I have a podcast to recommend. Uh, kind of adjacent uh, to what we talked about today, the history of Persia. Yay, uh, history of Persia. Straight, I'll say this for history podcasts. Their names are pretty much what they are. <laughs> this is the history of Persia. So... Uh, definitely, definitely recommend it if you're interested in Persian history. You know, just go, go take a listen. Uh, and we hit a milestone. We recently just had 1,400 or hit 1,400 all-time downloads. So, and I know I only account for 39 of them. <laughs> so, it's not just me doing it. So somebody listens. I listen. More than two people listen. So you know, um. If you're a listener, so please just maybe you know give us some feedback. We'd love to love to hear from you. Good uh, good rating, bad rating, whatever it is, we'll take it. So yeah, hopefully it's a good rating. But so so what are we talking about next week, Cody? Uh, we're headed back to more modern history. WW two. Oh, I thought you were about to say. I really thought you were about to say WWE, and I was like, what? Okay, sorry. The fact, the fact that Vince McMahon exists is enough up. Um, wow, cool. WW2, okay. Uh, I literally just listened to the all six Behind the Bastards episodes on him, and they didn't even get... they they He stopped at the 90s. Wow, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, next time. Uh, WW2, an incident that's uh, kind of in the cultural milieu a little bit because of a certain scene from a movie from 1975. Talk about uh, the USS Indianapolis. Okay. All right. You'll hear about it next time. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEffedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We We Effed Up. Up.